Hello and welcome to the R717 Show, brought to you by Ammonia Refrigeration Training Solutions. We are the newest opportunity in ammonia safety training and compliance. We serve to advance ammonia as the safest and most efficient refrigerant known to man. Our podcasts are driven by industry and relevant to ammonia operators, mechanics, technicians, engineers, and safety professionals. Without further ado, help me welcome our host, Jeremy Williams. Well, this is Jeremy Williams with the R717 Show. Today, we got a special podcast. I have Dan Worms with Camco Lubricants here. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Yourself? I'm doing fantastic, man. Fall's kicking in. We have 30 mile an hour wind here, and it's 40 degrees outside. The uh, leaves are starting to fall off the trees, and we're getting ready for winter, man. Yeah. Yeah, our leaves are pretty much gone, and we had uh, we had a little bit of snow overnight. Nothing stuck on the ground, but we've had a few snow flurries, and it's been windy today, too. So <laughs> we're w- winter's not far off for us. <laughs> and you're up in Minnesota, is that correct? Yep. Yeah, we're just uh, we're located just north of Minneapolis, so we're uh, we're we're used to the snow pretty much for you know a good uh, six months. <laughs> Absolutely, we haven't had our first hard freeze here. They're saying this Sunday we should get down to about twenty two, but we'll see if the weatherman is right this time. Yep. Uh, Dan's been in the industry for twenty plus years, dealing with ammonia refrigeration, refrigeration compressors, different variations of machines, and uh, he works with Camco Oils. Dan, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, what you do for Camco, and uh, how did you get into that role? Yeah, uh, you know, like you said, I I, I spent uh, 20 years, just shy of 20 years in the field, uh, you know, as a union pipe fitter installing and servicing uh, ammonia refrigeration systems. So uh, a little bit more emphasis on the, uh, you know, construction side than the service, but I did, did definitely work with the uh, a good uh, number of, you know, good uh, ammonia service technicians that we, that worked for, uh, uh, you know, a mechanical contractor here in town, our sister, one of our sister companies, uh, Cooler Mechanical. And, uh, you know, so it was, uh, it's kind of a family run business here, the three companies. And uh, so that's, that's kind of where I got my start uh, with, with the industrial refrigeration side of things. Uh, My grandpa, Mike, or my grandpa Vern Worms is one that actually started all these companies. And then my dad, Mike Worms, took over Camco from him, um, you know, a while back. And then um, my once Mike got close to retire, and then I, I came in here about, uh, I think it's been about six years now. And he, uh, so I've been pretty much uh, taking over, learning all the, all the ropes and, and dealing a lot with uh, uh, ammonia oils and, and a lot of the other oils that we offer for the, the food industry. So um, that's, that's pretty much where I got my start and how things have been going for me. So it, it, it's been, uh, it's been fun. It was a, a big learning curve going from, you know, uh, working in the field to a, an office career, but it, it's been challenging, but it's been fun. So I, I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed it, you know, every day of it. <laughs> so I had no idea that you were in the field. I just thought you were always with oil. So that's something I learned right now for sure, man. That's kind of neat because you're just not a salesman. You know, you've been in the field, you've connected these systems, you've ran them, you've installed them. So, you know, both sides of the equation, that's got to be phenomenal for, for your sales opportunity today of knowing both sides of that. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a lot of knowledge that you can bring to the table with it. And, you know, my dad, Mike was a fitter for, he, he had a he was 25 years in the field uh, before he came into, into the office, but, yeah, it's it's it definitely gives you an advantage of knowing what what's going on in the machines and you know understand the equipment, you understand the systems, you know. So, um, but yeah, it, it it definitely helps you you know know more about it and and understand it when you can you know you know you can definitely walk the walk with the guys as opposed to just talking the talk. So, it's uh, it's kind of an advantage that we look for here at Camco as far as you know being in sales for you know industrial oils. That, refrigeration oil specifically is is knowing refrigeration definitely helps you understand the system and, and what the oil does in the machines and within the system once it gets out there and how to get it back and 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 things like that so i know that your dad and my dad have a long history and uh i i encountered camco oils just because of my dad and i met your father mike one time at a yep. conference and uh ever since then it's been just a wonderful opportunity to have your organization, your company, your father, yourself is just a resource because having that technical understanding of the oil is, is of importance, whether you're dealing with petroleum-based oils or a fully synthetic, 
or whatever, whatever variation we may be using the oil for, you know, a lot of people just think it's oil, but no, it's just so much more when you start getting yeah. into it. My big question for today's podcast and your thoughts, you know, right now, and I think my entire career, we've always struggled to find good people, whether it was somebody for the field, whether it was a pipe filter, a welder, a service technician, an ammonia operator to engineers. And it's just getting more and more difficult to find good work, good people. And where are you finding anybody right now to fulfill the roles of the three companies that you're managing? I mean, where is the talent? Um, where is all the talent at? And if they're not in the, in the industry right now, where are we going to find them? Yeah, I mean, you know, being I, I got the, you know, the, the luxury of, of, you know, and the, you know, the mechanical side has the luxury of dealing with, you know, the union trades, uh, you know, for the piping aspect of things. And, you know, even over the last, you know, I'm still pretty active in our, in our union, our local union here. And it, it's a lot of the same questions going, where are we going to find these people? Because there's, there's more people retiring and we definitely don't have a lot of people applying, um, you know, as they would like to, especially for service side. Construction is not as bad, but service is definitely down as far as the, the class size is coming in. And, and it up, up here in, in Minnesota, it's definitely across the board from electricians to sheet metal to sprinkler fitters to, you know, plumbers. All of the trades are definitely struggling to get people in there. And, you know, we've kind of talked about it. You know, we, we had some discussion here at just at the Rita National Conference too this past week, earlier this week about where are we going to find these, these guys coming up? And, and even, even for us in our local chapter, we're like, how do we find, how do we get more people involved in Rita? How do we get people into the trades? And I kind of suggested maybe we need to go to some of these uh, career fairs. Um, you know, even as, as a, as a Rita chapter, or even as, you know, I know the, I know the pipe trades and things like that go to these high school, um, some of these high school career fairs and try to get, you know, there, there's plenty of kids that, that want to do technical stuff. They want to do, you know, uh, you know, computer type science and things like that, but it's definitely want, you try to drive kids to, to the trades because there's a lot of kids that have a lot of talent with their hands. I mean, you look at the people that are in, in the industry now, you know, those, those talents, they learned them either on the farm or, you know, they, they learn good work ethic with, um, you know, growing up or it's just kind of in their blood, their, you know, their DNA, their, their family history and things like that. So it's, uh, I, I think it's, it's something we may have to start targeting, targeting, even the younger demographics of high school, maybe even kids going into middle school of like, you know, what do you want to do when you get up there? I mean, I know a lot of kids think that, you know, I go to college, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to come out making, you know, six figures a year and I'm going to be rolling in the dough. And that's, <laughs> that's definitely not the case, but um, you know, with too many jobs, but it, the, the trades are, you know, even the trades and, and a lot of these maintenance, you know, company, you know, working for a, uh, you know, a Tyson Foods, a maintenance guy can make a, a pretty, pretty decent living, uh, you know, doing a job like that. It's just, yeah, where do we find them? But that that's kind of what I'm thinking is you almost got to go to the, go to high schools and career fairs and, and try to get people into those, um, you know, get people to look or consider those careers, you know. You know, you mentioned the Rita conference this week and uh, Tim Kors, the uh, past Rita chapter there up to the Northern Plains. It was nine years ago that I actually did a podcast with him and it was titled, where are we going to get ammonia operators? And it just seems like a decade later, we're still in the same equation, the same boat of where are we going to get people? And it's not just our field that needs people. I mean, anything out there that has a blue collar craft, a utility application, there's just a high demand for that skill set. It's just not going to happen overnight. You know, three, four years of apprenticeship would be phenomenal, but they don't exist either, or at least very far in between. I think that, you know, maybe going to the local high schools and make them aware of their career days is a start, but there's a huge field. Some say 40,000 people deal with ammonia refrigeration daily across the United States. And I would assume that we're probably going to lose 10% of those in the next few years to retirement. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, a lot of the, a lot of our customers, I mean, the, the, some of the people that we talk with, you know, you know, several times a year from some of these plants, there's definitely a lot of maintenance managers and, and refrigeration operators that we see at safety days and, and, and even talking with on the phone and email that, yeah, I mean, within the next five years, they're going to, they're going to pull the pin and they need somebody to step into those roles. Um, there's a handful of, people that I've talked to at plants that, you know, they don't even have, 
they're, they're maybe at 50% of their maintenance staff there, you know, guys just aren't, aren't quit or either retiring and nobody's t- filling the role or again, just trying to find people to, uh, you know, to do it is it's, it's definitely going to be a tough task here for a while. So we used to think that maybe part of it was the financial pay for an ammonia operator, but I've seen that that's probably increased more in the last five, six years than we've seen. But yeah. even some of these plants paying what would be considered top dollar for utility craft mechanics, there's still, I mean, needs for great talent inside those facilities. And maybe it's just something that we're going to have to manage for the rest of our careers and learn how to keep the folks that we have and be able to find and raise the ones up that we want to be able to fulfill those roles. Yeah. And I mean, even, I mean, even in the, my time in the field, it was amazing when you went from plant to plant to plant, the amount of, you know, some plants, they, you know, they could, they could operate the system, but that was about it. They couldn't pump anything out. Um, The service stuff, they couldn't really do it. They relied on, you know, outside contractors for a lot of that, but, you know, uh, you know, I still talk to a handful of, uh, you know, fitters in the field and stuff. And it's amazing what some of these how good some of these maintenance uh, maintenance guys are when it comes to doing pump outs and things like that. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's a talent to being able to get that ammonia out of some of them low temp pipes and vessels. It's amazing what some of these guys can do. And that's just, that's at a plant level for a guy that, you know, pretty much, you know, grew up on a farm, but, you know, knew how to fix everything that was on the farm. So it's, it's amazing how, how talented some of these, these operators are that it's almost like, you know, boy, you could have, you could have been gone pretty far in the trades, but you know, we still need those guys at the plants too. So that's definitely a level that is, it's going to be tough to do because even, even at the contractor level, I mean, it's hard to find a, you know, a good service technician that can drive, you know, three States apart and, and go fix almost anything in, in some of them places. Yes, sir. You know, on the opposite side of this, you know, there's such a hole and a gap of trying to fulfill these holes with uh, some good qualified folks. This is a great opportunity for the ones that are in the business to step up, you know, to, to take that next advancement to, to kind of stretch out and whether it's fear or whether they don't think they can do it, you know, we definitely don't want to try to get somebody into a position higher than their capabilities, but a lot of people are just, they're just comfortable and they yep. don't want to try to take that next step. And maybe mm-hmm. that next step is that time and yep. uh, to, to move into these roles and just try to take a chance. There's nothing wrong with making mistakes. Just don't try to make the same mistake over and over and over. Yep. And when it comes to ammonia and it comes to the safety side of it, I mean, there's so much of a resource of knowledge out there that you don't have to try it by yourself. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, even nowadays when, with, with YouTube, I mean, being able to fix stuff. I mean, when I first got, when I first got into the trade and was ran, running, you know, more of a, not really residential, but more of a commercial, uh, you know, service, you know, uh, for almost three years ran commercial service stuff. And, and, you know, how, how does that pressure control or work or, you know, what, what, how does that thermostat work? I mean, these guys have so much uh, you know, read so many resources at their, uh, their disposure now or their exposed, you know, their disposal. So they can, you know, pretty much fix a lot of stuff with, with YouTube nowadays. And especially with, you know, being able to listen to podcasts and like this, um, I've, you know, kind of turned a lot of, uh, some of the guys in our Rita chapter on to, you know, some of the podcasts I've done and some of the other, uh, other guys that I kind of, you know, listen to every once in a while. It's, amazing what you can learn just by listening to guys talk about doing this stuff so absolutely got a lot at their a lot at their fingertips to be able to uh to learn from you know so let's talk a little bit about tim course and uh you know his legacy that he Mm -hmm. had and the rita chapter up there in minnesota and where you guys are at and what y'all's next advancement and you know who's who right now is leading it and uh what does that look like for you guys yeah i mean you know just we got had a really good, uh, Tim actually got honored. He got, we got the, uh, awarded with the Veneman award for lifetime achievement achievement here at, uh, the national conference. Wow. Um, and it was really nice cause, uh, you know, Brett Swanson, he's been the, I think the treasurer of our, our, uh, chapter for quite some time. Brett also served on the national board, but he, uh, he, he actually got the opportunity to present the award um, and they, they did, uh, they brought, we brought Brenda, Tim's, uh, wife down for the, to, a, you know, to accept the award. Yeah. Yep. And so it was, it was really nice. Cause it's, you know, Tim, Tim and, uh, John Hendrickson from Gartner refrigeration are basically the wonders ones that started 
um, the Northern Plains chapter, John kind of came up with the idea after being on the, the board, uh, you know, or being, you know, he's past president and being on the board also with National Rita that they wanted to start one here. And he reached out to, to Tim. I think he was, you know, did some work with Tim at one of the places he worked at. And uh, Tim was basically the heart and soul of ours once he got, you know, he took over and I mean, he was at every meeting. Um, I, I bet you he probably missed maybe five meetings in the course of, you know, five years. Been he, he put a lot of time and effort into really making the Northern Plains chapter what it was. I mean, he was he was the heart and soul behind the our safety day as well. He he planned majority of that on his own. Um, you know, they had the, the, the board or the, the leaders that would also work with it. But Tim really put a lot of time into that and really sacrificed a lot of his time because I mean almost every meeting he go to he had almost a three-hour drive you know to get to him because he was coming from you know up in northern Minnesota if not when he was working in, in North Dakota but it uh he really pushed really hard to to do that and everybody was very grateful and you know most of the people that have been a part of the chapter for quite some time uh definitely agree that without him it wouldn't be the chapter as strong of a chapter as we are and um, now we got, uh, we voted, uh, Paul Anderson in, um, from Cool Air Mechanical. He's the acting president for, as of now. And, um, so we're between him and Brett Swanson and Bob Lind and, uh, Zach Johnson and, uh, Greg Leach and, um, uh, and Lawrence Stanley, those guys are pretty much leading our chapter, you know, forward and, it, it, it might not be as what it was with Tim, but there's definitely some, some big shoes to fill with, with what Tim, what Tim started. So, but those guys are doing an excellent job of, of, uh, you know, going forward with it the, the best we can. And, and so we're, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're forging on. We start still got most, most of the meetings already planned for this year. So we're just, uh, still trying to figure out ways to even grow the chapter and get more and more people to, to know about, you know, Rita and the education that the education and safety that, you know, these guys can really learn from, from that going forward. So. Um, yeah, I was up there about four weeks ago in your area and there was a plant that I was with, with Hormel and they kept asking about well, where can we, you know, who, who, how can we learn more? How can we get involved? And I was like, you got to get involved with, with organizations like Rita. I mean, you have one of the biggest chapters in the yeah. country from at least a strength perspective. And I said, this is a prime opportunity for you guys, a couple hour drive and right there in your back door and a great way of meeting other people. Yeah. And a lot of them leading experts in the field from like contractors to vendors. I mean, a great, great opportunity there. I'll never forget Tim and I always remember his emails and I hope mm -hmm. you guys continue on the little news emails that he would always send out and uh, the updates of what was always happening with the chapters and the meetings that were taking place. And uh, a man to never be forgotten, that is for sure. Yeah, I think I think our going forward, our our safety day is always going to be known as uh, the Tim Coors Memorial Safety Day, as I think is pretty much the way it was, way it's going to go forward. That's that's what it was here a couple months ago is, you know, the Tim Coors Memorial Safety Day. So I think it'll always it always have his name on that safety day because it definitely wouldn't be what it is, you know, without all of his hard work that he put in for, you know, countless hours that his wife Brenda told us about, you know, the other night. And so it's, it's, he's definitely going to be, it was always, his emails were always interesting when you got him because he, you know, you always got the deer count. Everyone's going to miss the deer count that he had, you know, running. So it, uh, it, it's, it won't be the same without him, but, you know, we're just going to have to to press on and, and keep his memory alive the best we can. Yes, sir. Dan, I've had the opportunity to come across thousands of mechanics on an annual basis, and most of them that we get to know are, you know, some background mechanical, whether it's electrical or just pneumatics, uh, hydraulics, it doesn't matter what it is. It's somebody that had a mechanical background that generally just didn't wake up one day and says, I'm going to learn ammonia refrigeration or even learn specific things like oil. What are three things, maybe four, that you would think that somebody new to refrigeration, specifically ammonia, needs to know about oil? and oil being used, let's say, with compressors, pumps, or various things? 
Today, I'd like to bring you our newest sponsor that is Auto PSM. They enable companies to manage their PSM programs better, faster, and smarter than any other programs that are available. It's very easy to use from the PSM coordinator to the technician to corporate level management. We're so excited with our partnership with them, and we believe the Auto PSM team, their product and service is the best in the industry. That's Auto PSM. AutoPSM.com is a step above the rest. By far the best and the only truly PSM integrated software in the industry. Give them a call today and request your free demo. That is Auto psm.com i mean the main thing that we we want to make sure that everybody knows is you know there's there's different obviously different types of oils out there uh for the the ammonia market and um you know some of them are you know some of them it, it can they can create problems to the point where you you don't understand it you know a guy comes into a plant a kid young kid comes in on the maintenance staff and and they've been using an, an older technology uh, you know, oil like a naphthenic oil, uh, you know, a Shell Capella or a, a Mobile Arctic 300, the, you know, the you know, old naphthenic oils that were designed for R22, but you could use them in ammonia applications. And, and you know, those oils are definitely going to have their issues of lots of oil carry over to the system, which means they got they got to make up, they got to add oil quite frequently, and you're draining more oil. And we all know how, you know, draining oil from the systems can be as, as dangerous as it can if it's not done properly. Um, so, you know, understanding the different types of oils out there is, is key in, in what to expect. And, and we do a lot of, you know, some chapter talks on that, letting people know what those oils, different oils are, what kind, you know, what types they are and what to expect from those products. And Why would a plant be using napathenics today? Is that just because they've been using it since the 80s and that's just what they've always had and that's always what they've always done? Or, I mean, why would a plant choose oils like that? A lot of them do it because, like you said, it, well, that's what we've always used, you know. It, it, so that's the way it's been. You got you get a, a guy that's been there for 20 years. He's just, you know, I mean, we, we call people all the time and they're like, no, I'm not changing. This is what I've always had. Okay, you know, can't force you, <laughs> you yeah. know, but it's it's some of them have some of them went to it i mean there's some newer facilities that, that we're dealing with or have dealt with in the past where they they started on an oem oil and then they will well we're going to go to this naphthenic because it's cheaper um well yeah it's cheaper but you're going to use twice as much oil in the course of a year as you would you know with with the oem oil or the newer technology the hydro treated oils or even or even the synthetics so it, th those are kind of the things that we notice is like, why did you do that? Cause I know you, you didn't start with that oil because of warranty. So how did, how, you know, it's like, well, it was just cheaper, you know, is what a lot of them say. So, um, you know, or they got a, a guy that, oh, we really like the Chevron dealer in town or whatever. So some of them, it's just, they, they get, they think they're saving money on it, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, if they got even older compressor technology, you know, older filter recips with the baffle style um, oil separators mm -hmm. in there. They're just, you know, trying to slow the flow and, and rain the oil out. They're going to carry over so much oil and they could be adding oil once a week to some machines. And, you know, you know, with the newer oils, you shouldn't be adding oil, you know, more than, you know, once every two months with this technology, the new technology products that really, you know, increase the coalescibility of the oil and keep it in the machine. So, um, and that's, that's what we see most of the time of why people done it is they think it's cheaper, but now, um, because the industry has changed in the, on the, on the automotive side of things, automotive industry is almost all 100% synthetic. So there's no need for naphthenic or that type of mineral oil anymore. So not many people are making it, especially with the phase out of R22, there's no, not as much need for it. Mm -hmm. So the prices have skyrocketed on that one as well. So that's where you might start seeing people change over to the uh, the hydro treated oils, you know, similar to what the OEMs oil or, or like what we offer, things like that. So uh, I think that's people will start to see that and and availability, especially right now, availability is very sparse across the board on on a lot of stuff. There's a lot of things that they're they're not making because they can't, you know, the demand is low. Let's let's not make that. Let's make what we need to, you know, what we have high demand for. At the refineries and things so i think that's kind of the 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 way what we see with people and why they use the naphthenic technology or again it's well it's what we've always had you know yeah so 
do you think that more of the industry is more of a hydro crack process oil or fully synthetic at this point? Mm-hmm. Or do you think that still more of the industry is in the mineral nathetic base? I think majority of the industry with, with all the OEMs carrying their own, um, you know, the, hyd- the, the hydro treated uh, technology that that's definitely the market is more into that area. Um, synthetics, not, I mean, really the main reason you're going to use a synthetic and ammonia application is for is for low temp applications or or if somebody you know a company says that you know they can get you can get increased efficiency by using synthetics as well you can lower you know the amp draw you know a a pretty good amount with running a a thinner oil or even a a synthetic because you got a much slipperier surface there so they they can increase their efficiency, and if you got thirty compressors running in an engine room, or if you got two engine rooms with that many compressors in there, they can really you know help their bottom line with electrical costs by using synthetics. But um, the synthetics do carry over a little bit more oil because they're because they're so so much lighter aromatically than than the, the hydro treated uh, oils are. So. You know they're going to use a little bit more on the synthetic side of things than they would on a hydro treated side, but you, you got to do what you got to do to get make sure that you're not, uh, you know, gelling up oil in uh, in the oil pots and I mean, it's in the vessels and in coils and in low temp piping. So that that'd be the main reason that we see most people using the synthetics is is the temperature application. Once you get in, you know, much below minus forty, minus forty five, you're going to have to start looking at a different oil to make sure you're getting good oil return and you're draining pretty much what you're putting in is you know your oil logs are pretty Stay cool flowing. in and out yep keep it flowing so as education what does hydro treat process mean what is that i mean somebody you know you hear these words mineral base you hear synthetic you hear hydro treat what what is what do those mean what is the category separations between them so it's basically the, the refining process and the naphthenic technology is pretty much solvent refined. So you add different solvents to it to extract the oil, to break it down and, and get the different components out of it as they're, you know, as they're processing it. Uh, when you get into the hydro treated process, you're, you're, you're basically, you start out the same um, as you do with the, the, the solvent refining process. Um, with atmospheric distillation, and then you get vacuum distillation, and then you go to your hydro-treated process where it's basically subjected to uh, almost, it's pretty close to like 750 degrees, but it's like 2000 PSI. So you basically completely atomize all of the crude oil that's in there and saturate it with hydrogen, which protects, which basically is what protects that base oil. So you're, you're getting rid of all of the impurities in there that um, that cause that oil to react at lower temperatures um, as far as atomization and things like that during which is what causes the oil carryover with the lower refined products um, during that process you basically crack the oil the the carbon molecule add another carbon atom and then saturate it with hydrogen so you you add it you're adding carbon you're adding you know a carbon atom to it and that basically, that's what gives it that better coalescibility. You're adding weight to that, that, mol- that higher molecular weight. Um, and then like for our stuff, is it's, it goes through a second stage of that. So it's just purifying it that much more. So by the time it's all said and done, you got a 99.9% pure base oil. That's where you get the water white base oil, where you get um, with the naphthenic oils, you get more of that motor oil look with a little mm-hmm. brown tint to it because that what you see there is the impurities that are still in there, the, the, the wax content uh, and things like that that are still left in that, that base oil that those things react at those lower temperatures, um, you know, which causes that oil to be more, more volatile. So it, you know, those components in there, they cause it to, you know, react at lower temperatures during compression. So then it causes it to atomize so thin that it, it usually gets past the, the coalescing elements and ends up out in the system. So, and you get a little bit of light, lighter ends of the oil that burn off as well that carry out there. But uh, with the hydro-treated oils, you don't get that, that, that heavy oil carryover. You're definitely lighter because it's less soluble with the ammonia and it's definitely less volatile because of its higher refining rate. So it's, uh, 
it's it's an interesting process and it, it can definitely bore people to death if you get going too far into it but it's, it's very interesting it, very it, it is once you really you know get down to the brass tacks on it and find out exactly why and you know if if you know when we're trying to you know convert people over it it, it takes some time for them to process all that information and you know, then when you, you pair it with a really good additive package, that's what really prolongs that, that life of the oil, um, you know, to make it last, you know, 30 plus thousand hours in some of these machines. So there's a book that was uh, published, I think 1856, it was written by a guy named Mr. Redwood. And they had a talk about in that book, a lot purging condensers, but most of it was carbon or they assumed it was carbon as it was republicized because of that coming out of the oil. Do you find that a problem today with oils, you know, that um, the breakdown of the oil itself into gaseous states that end up becoming non-condensables? Or do you think that that's just something of the past? Or I think it was it was definitely an issue in the past because, I mean, I got lucky enough to, to cut into some systems that were built in the 60s and the 70s. And, you know, even some of the 80s, some of the stuff that was put in in the 80s. And it's amazing the, the carbon and the sludge buildup that you'd find uh, you find in the pipes. I mean, I've had a couple of guys that have cut some pipes open and they've, they, you know, they've gotten a sample. Oh, let's, let's get this down. Let's, you know, let's see what this is. And yeah, a lot of times it, it's a waxy looking substance. Sometimes it can even be, you know, you know, carbonish where it's, it's almost crystallized because it's, it, th- those older oils, they would, they would burn so bad because they were, you know, because of the, the low refining rate that the, the refinability that they had. So um, I, I don't know if it's as much of an issue now, because as long as, you know, every, a lot of these facilities are doing a good job of oil analysis. So they're preventing the oil from getting burnt and broken down, um, you know, and, and a lot of the hydrotreated technology, as long as you don't overrun the oil, very rarely does it, is it going to burn off and, um, you know, turn into carbon within the system. Mm-hmm. So you, you could see it. I saw it several times, you know, myself, you know, doing top ends on some built to recips where somebody didn't do much for, they didn't do oil changes very often, or they didn't, uh, uh, you know, they, they ran their, their top ends for far past 10,000 hours. And you would get, uh, you pull the heads off and you'd find, yeah, chunks of carbon up in the top of the head. Once you, you know, once you got that off and you're cleaning the discharge valve plate and things off is, you could definitely find a lot of carbon buildup in there, but the, the newer oils really limit the ability to be burned off like that. I, I don't know of anybody that's really had too many issues with, with you know, it causing non-condensables in the system, but definitely not something to say didn't happen back in the past, but yeah. I, I don't know too much of it now, at least. So for a fully synthetic, what does that mean now compared to like a hydro-treated or a double hydro-treated process? I mean, what's the big difference between that and calling something synthetic? So it's pretty much just the way that it's, you know, it's, it's a different process of making it. Um, you know, you, you're getting, you know, it's, again, it's another explanation of a, a long process, but just making the synthetic oils, you're getting something that's definitely twice as slippery. Uh, of a product, product you're getting better lubricate lubrication ability um, out of that oil, and it's basically when you look at a you know a synthetic versus a semi-synthetic oil, all the molecules are the same size, instead of you know one a little bit bigger than the other, and then a couple of the same size. It's it, you know a lot of times they explain it as a bunch of circles, um, kind of drawn out, but they're all the same size, so you it's nice and smooth. You get better. Uh, you know, fr- anti-friction or better roll on that that oil. So it really increases um, being that it's all, you know, a similar molecular size. It really helps allow much lower pore points with those oils um, versus the semi-synthetics. So it's, that's the real advantage at that point is just, you know, um, kind of getting into uh, the poor point that they want with a lot of it. Um, there's a lot of OEMs that are starting to push a little bit more of that for systems that are running, you know, that cold now. So that, that's one thing we kind of saw for a while is that a lot of people switched to, we're using oils, but then, you know, they put their system in and say they're running minus 30. Well, now we're going to add a new line and now we got to start running, 
you know, minus 40, minus 45, because that, you know, to, to freeze that product faster or whatever. So then, then you get into an issue where you start, you know, logging oil into the low side vessels and even in the low side piping. So uh, I know your dad and, and Leon Brune did a, a pretty good study, you know, years ago on, you know, they did that video with, where showing what actually happens to the oil as the temperature changes inside that chamber. And it, it's definitely an eye opener for a lot of people, I'm sure, but um, that, you know, those are kind of the real things. It's, it's just the differences, but it, there's definitely a cost difference as well. It's, it's probably about double per gallon versus what you're looking at for that you know, uh, versus a semi-synthetic oil. So, but there's, there's definitely the advantages to it for sure. So let's talk a couple of factors on these three categories, if you will, especially, you know, with screws, we have a lot lower discharge temperatures, but for those ones running recips, where is generally the magic number for how hot can the oil get before it becomes a concern? You know, whether it's a napathetic mm -hmm. or hydro treated process or a synthetic, you know, when is that point where too hot is too hot? Yeah, I think, you know, most, most discharge off of, you know, Recip compressors, I mean, depending on, you know, how low a suction they're doing, you know, hopefully you're not, they're not running to the discharge too much more on a recip, much over, you know, 235, 240. I know, depending on ambient conditions and, you know, condensers <laughs> that aren't working right, it could be a, a real, real challenge for it. But I think most recip compressors, they're trying to keep the oil, you know, around 90 to, to like 120 degrees, um, you know. I think as long as you can keep that oil, granted you're in the discharge, in, inside the heat of compression, it's a different story. But I mean, most of those oils, the flash points, you're up into the, you know, the 400s. So everybody should be definitely a ways, you know, long. Way, way below that, the, yeah. Way below those temperatures. But, you know, definitely the, from a naphthenic, you're going to, that's going to be your lowest flash, you know, your lowest flash point up to a synthetic where you're going to have your highest flash point just because it's a much more stable the more the refined the product is the more stable the oil is uh, which is usually characteristic characterized in its uh, the oil's viscosity index so um but i mean you know i've seen a lot of you know with with screw machines you, you're definitely you know higher compression ratios um that you know a lot of those machines you know you're 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 taking i i want to say i think pretty close to 60 percent of that discharge you know, heat of compression is removed by the oil, you know, through the oil cooler mm -hmm. or, you know, through the liquid injection, obviously. But um, so it's, uh, I think the the point, the temperature ranges, as long as everybody's for oil, I, I know some people that I've talked to have, have had some concern, you know, anything over like 150, they've had some oil temperatures in the 150s. And I was kind of like, well, you might want to look into that oil cooler and see what's going on. Maybe it's scaled up or something like that. But um, you know, generally anything under, you know, the 150 range on, on like a recip because the oil temperatures and screws, you know, usually the oil stays, you know, you know, inlet oil temperature, you know, is usually somewhere 140 to 160, I think is, is kind of the normal operating range for some of those. Obviously, I think liquid injection, your oil temps a little cooler because mm -hmm. you're you're getting that oil, that oil cooled right at the discharge point, you know, with the, with the liquid injection. So those are, that, that's kind of what I would say as far as your, uh, you know, the threshold limits on that uh, temperature ranges for, for things like that. So for those three different, you know, range, those classifications. When you look at like a thermal siphon cold screw compared to a liquid injection cold screw, does that change what type of oil you would suggest them to use in those machines? Or regardless what type of oil they're using, thermal siphon or liquid injection, we have the same packages for them? Yeah, we pretty much just use the same package. Um, there's no real there's no real change. I know some people have, have kind of questioned us with ours because of our, our 717HT. Some people think that that's the HT stands for... Uh, you know, high temp or like our SR717 SC, some people think that's, you know, for screw compressor, but, um, you know, our HT just is defining it as a hydro treated oil and our SC is our, our same oil, the same oil, but it's just got the seal conditioner additive in it. So, um, you know, there's really no different oil for liquid injection versus, uh, you know, for thermal siphon. So usually with thermal siphon, you can tend to run a little bit higher discharge temperature. So you it might be something you just want to keep a good eye on that oil because it, obviously it's, you know, it's, it's running a little bit warmer, but then you get, you know, liquid injection, you're, 
you can you've got a lot of more more liquid being injected in there most of it's flashing but you know a little bit more subjected to more liquid ammonia versus you know vapor what are some other things that you would say is uh something that an operator needs to know about oil like especially with barrels or containers or gallon drums and leaving them open and the word hydroscopic what does that mean the hydroscopic just means that it in, in its nature natural state it's going to absorb oil so like polyester oils, those ones are very hydroscopic. So they, you open that container up, it's going to, it's going to draw air in, I mean, it's going to draw air and moisture in right now. So um, that's usually why those are always put into metal containers, whether it's a five gallon pail or one gallon can, one gallon can, uh, because if you put it in a plastic pail, it's going to, it's going to draw moisture through that plastic pail over time. Um, you know, usually with, you know, storage, I know in a lot of these facilities now, I think, I don't know if it's one of the IIR standards or they're really limiting the amount of new oil or even waste oil that's allowed to be stored in engine rooms because of the flammability rate um, and, and for fire protection purposes. But um, that's kind of what we see these days is, you know, just trying to make sure that, um, you know, they keep the, the drums closed. I know there's some places that, you know, they, they kind of have a dip tube that's, you know, hooks right up to their, uh, it hooks right up to their pump, you know, and they can just roll the, the drum around with that dip tube in there, make sure that's closed or pull that out. Uh, make sure they got a good seal on, on that bung cap. Um, Cause over time, if, if they've had it for a while, that, that little uh, rubber gasket can, can crack, you know, on those, but, you know, keep, try to keep stuff in, in a, you know, controlled environment. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of places do some pretty extensive filtering and things like that before they, they put the, the oil in um, to the machines. But, yeah, it's just it's just keep things closed, uh, you know, keep the drums closed as best you can. I mean, the, the, the hydrotreaters aren't going to draw a ton of water and moisture into them. But if, if it's open, it's going to get in there. It's going to it's going to end up in that oil. Um, usually they will separate. But, you know. It, it definitely can end up getting pumped in with the oil from that, that drum. So it's just keep things closed and, and uh, you know, try to make sure any hoses uh, on the, uh, you know, pumps and things like that are, you know, or, you know, the unions are tight back on them. Yes, sir. Yeah. Hook them up and things like that, just to make sure you, you know, keep it cl as closed as you, as much as you can. That's good stuff. So like the life expectancies of these variations of oils, what would you expect the life expectancy to be once they're actually put into the system, assuming that they were in a good condition in the container or barrel before we installed it, running them in applicable temperature ranges, et cetera. Um, what would one expect to be able to have as a lifetime for the variations of the different categories of oil? I would say, well, we, we find a lot of people, at least with naphthenic oils, you're not, you're looking at you know, especially in like a recip where you're holding maybe seven, seven gallons of oil or more, you, you might really limit yourself to, uh, you know, most recips might be looking at three to 5,000 hours max. So you're looking at a couple oil changes per year on a machine that runs 24 seven. The, the hydro treated oils, it kind of depends on the system. Um, you know, we got some several cold storage facilities that use some of our products that, you know, got five to seven years of life on that oil. Um, it, it kind of depends on the application, what, you know, is synthetics, you can probably go, you know, so, I mean, we're looking at, you know, 30 to 30, 30 to 40,000 hours on wow. some of our, on some of our products for sure that we got customers out there with and synthetic, you could probably go and maybe even double it. Um, I know we had a customer here that he said he had a uh, hundred thousand hours on a booster machine. And he told me he was using the same oil for quite some time on that, that oil, that machine. Yeah. And he just, he just pulled it at a hundred thousand hours here, I think two years ago and, and had it rebuilt. Um, obviously a booster, you're, you're working the oil less, you got lower velocities through that machine. So that oil is, is definitely going to probably last longer in a booster than, you know, in a high stage or even a single stage machine, you're, you're, you're working it pretty hard uh, in, in a single stage on like a low stage side, if you're, if you're, you know, taking it all the way up to discharge. Um, or so, but synthetics, yeah, you can, you know, you definitely get, uh, you know, probably double that uh, out of it. Um, the main enemy that we tell people that you, that's why we really, really, we really stress the oil analysis is that, uh, 
you know, it, the enemy of, of the oil life is, is contaminants and water. So if, if you're doing oil analysis, you're keeping a close eye on any contaminants, any metalware, any, any other contaminants that could get in there. If somebody puts the wrong oil in a machine, you're going to pick it up in oil analysis. You got a lot of water in the ammonia. Uh, I know it's going to show up in that, in the oil and on the oil reports. So if, even people that are, I know a lot more facilities are starting to test their moisture content on their, their ammonia itself to make sure that, you know, they got to, they're getting as dry of as, you know, mm-hmm. as they can to increase their, their capacity and their efficiency. So um, those are kind of the, the key factors we see that, you know, if that is, it's going to break the oil down. So, I mean, as long as you're keeping on it, with the uh, oil analysis, you're, you're going to definitely increase the, the life of the oil. I know some facilities do have kind of, I know I've talked to several places where they kind of have it written to their PSM program to, you know, if they got a machine that's running 24 seven, every five years, they might pull it and replace it just so that, you know, rebuild it or, or you know, put a new screw on whatever their, their procedure is. So a lot of them will change the oil at that time. Mm-hmm. So I was in a plant maybe eight, nine weeks ago, and they had the oil separator open. And long story short, they didn't have the right coalescers to replace it, but the manway was left open. And yep. when you think about, you know, that that compressor's had ammonia, it's had oil in it. Ammonia and oil are both hydroscopic. You know, they both love water. Yeah. Uh, and it's been open for a week or so. I can only imagine how much moisture has migrated back into that system, that oil separator waiting for this. And it's yep. just a lack of these people's understanding that, you know, hey, if you don't have the right part, at least, you know, close it back up and, you know, pressurize it with nitrogen a little bit while you're waiting for that, just so that water's not seeping in directly into that system. And I would say probably running the oil. I mean, you guys would know more than us on this situation. But um, as you said, water is being one of the two biggest problems with the destruction of oil of these machines. Uh would you suggest to companies that, you know, open up like a compressor force service if they're not going to immediately fix it and put it back online to at least, you know, re-isolate it and pressurize it, but maybe with nitrogen. So air and moisture is not coming in. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly don't know. I don't know how they managed to leave the manhole open that long without somebody yelling at them, closing it up. But I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't leave that manhole cover off because you can't trust those valves, <laughs> but um, I, I would say, yeah, that if that was me and you, I, I know right now, I just, I just talked to a guy today that said, yeah, they're having trouble getting oil filters in general, even, even from one of the OEMs. So it, it's just, I would imagine there's a, a shortage of being able to get a lot of parts right now. And I would definitely, you know, keep that. If that was me, I would have definitely closed that at least close the machine up. Uh, some people are really good at doing that and then getting, you know, when they, if they got the parts that are you know, pull a vacuum on it and get yeah. any, anything out of there. Cause again, yeah, there, there very well could be oil. That's, I mean, moisture that's getting drawn into that oil uh, and it could be sitting in there, you know, and they're going to, they're going to find out when they start it up and they do a, you know, an oils that are next oil analysis on it. But yeah, I, I would, uh, if it's going to, at this point with, with, with the lead times on some of these things, if I guess that, you know, if it was me and, you know, you got a good shaft seal on that machine, I definitely would throw a little nitrogen on it, you know, at least a little, little five PSI or two to five PSI just to keep it closed. So it's not, there's no moisture coming into it definitely is uh, not a bad idea. I, I, I know there's some places that we've worked with that have done um, that have, you know, stored packages or something like that. And they sealed them up and they put nitrogen on it just to make sure it, you know, it uh, stays, you know, stays pure purified in there and clean so i i know all the all, pretty much all the new equipment comes that way compressors and vessels and they're not vessels as much as the uh you know coils evaporator yeah. coils and things come with pressure on them just to keep them keep them pure, purged keep that air out of it so yes sir uh, yeah it's definitely not a bad idea to, to put some nitrogen charge on if it can be sitting that long Part of our purpose with the money refrigeration training solutions is to help make ammonia sustain, you know, as being one of the safest refrigerants known to man. Uh, closing today, you know, what would you have to say to the industry or to the ammonia operator of anything that you could leave with them with your knowledge and experience about ammonia safety? I would definitely just advise people that to, to definitely do, you know, stuff like what you're doing, where you're coming out here, out to those facilities and take advantage of every training you can get because you know there's a lot of people that come into this and and 
you know, you don't know, you don't know how it's supposed to work unless somebody tells you how it's supposed to work, you know? So, I mean, to me, it was, you know, that was the biggest thing for me going, you know, learning service was, okay, you know, what am I doing here? You know, as far as valving something off and my, my trapping liquid, because I mean, to me, until somebody told me about it, I never thought about it when I would shut a valve, you know, until somebody says, okay, you got to make sure you shut that liquid valve, you manually open that solenoid to make sure yeah. you you purge, you, you draw any, you, you ain't trapping no liquid anywhere. And, you know, it, it happens, you know, a little bit more than I think anybody wants it to, but um, I would take advantage of every bit of training anybody can get this day and age to make sure that, you know, like for you guys, when you come out and do an operator training and, and you're teaching them how to operate the system and, and even for people that, you know, um, you know, to, to do your, your hazmat training and, and, you know, these places definitely do the training so that you're comfortable, you know, in that hazmat equipment. And, you know, cause it's a lot of people, again, a lot of people have said it's, it's not a matter of if it happened, it's, it's, it's when it's going to happen. And, and are you prepared for it? Um, I, I know the first time I was in a level A suit, I wasn't comfortable in it, you know, but um, the, we, everybody got, when I first did my, my 24 hour, you know, has whopper class, you got into the suit, you know, and they always took your picture and then it was like, okay, let's do the mock scenario. And, you know, I, I volunteered to get in it again. Cause it's like, well, I'm the guy that's going to have to go out at two in the morning, you know, to, to try and, you know, fix a leak. And I, I want to be as prepared as I can for that, that, that uh, scenario or that, that situation. So I would definitely really push people for training for safety and, and, you know, training for the event and just, and pray to God that it doesn't happen, you know, and because at the end of the day, everybody, you know, I want to make sure everybody goes home to their family every day you know, with our employees and, and people that I worked with, I definitely wouldn't want to see anybody get hurt. I mean, I had my fair, my close, my fair share of close calls with ammonia too, but you know, which I'm pretty much any operator service technician will tell you, they tell a couple of stories, you know, but they're, they're close calls, but you know, it's, I would definitely make sure everybody gets as much training as possible when it comes to operating, you know, everybody at least should be through an operator one class, whether, you know, going to a, a, a class, uh, one of the technical schools on it, or, you know, having somebody like you guys coming and do the training, that's, that would be the thing that they should know, because it, that's definitely really opened my eyes when I went through my first operator class. So it was definitely uh, safety and it made me feel a lot more comfortable, you know, with ammonia. There's a lot of people that aren't comfortable with it. And, you know, it's, you know, once you have a bad, you know, a, a close call or something with it, it definitely wakes you up and you kind of start to second guess, do I want to do this tomorrow? So I, I would definitely say it's, it's something that everybody should definitely do it from service technicians to working for contractors to anybody operating anything in an engine room, even, you know, somebody that, well, the, the regular guy's gone today. So this guy's in there, you know, uh, and he's, you know, pull one of the maintenance guys off the line and, you know, he doesn't know nothing about it. So it's definitely, everybody should be, be trained that anybody that's going to ever touch a valve or, or push a button on a microprocessor should be knowing what they're doing. That's it's sure. the effect of the cause for sure. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show today. I want to make sure that uh, you tell your dad, thank you as well. And everybody else, Camco Limicrits, Cool Air Mechanical. There's probably going to be many questions or comments, and I would like to be able to address some of them directly to you. If these listeners have anything, can I list them your phone number, email address, maybe uh, your website as well? Yep, you certainly can. We're here to help regardless, whether it's our product or somebody else. Anybody's got questions about oil or, you know, filtration or, uh, you know, oil analysis, we're, we're here to help. So. Thank you so much for being part of the R717 show. And until we see each other again, we'd like to tell you to keep it in the pipes. All right. I agree. Keep it in the pipes. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. That wraps up today's R717 show. If you are seeking a specific topic or would like to be a part of the next episode, give us a call today. If you enjoyed today's topics, please like and share. Thank you from all of us at Ammonia Refrigeration Training Solutions. And until we meet again, keep it in the pipes.